silence of our friends. That's right. The show title is the, si- the silence, the silence of our friends. I'm George M. Matthews II, and it's my happy privilege uh, to be with you. This program airs each Monday evening at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. This is a great time to help us to build the channel. Uh, for those of you that are over on YouTube already, you can pass this link along, share it with friends, and help us to, again, build the channel. If you're viewing us at this time on the uh, Facebook feeds, um, again, that is a temporary feed. It Normally, this particular program is, is designed for the YouTube channel. Uh, we air it through and via Facebook, and so you can view us here. So um, please share the link. Uh, subscribe to the channel. Make sure you're being notified each time uh, this program is being presented. You can really help us by sharing, sharing, sharing right to now, liking, and then give us your comments. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to have your ideas for show topics, for um, particular concerns, even your various stories um, that affect and speak to um, the issues of which are, or for which our program exists. So again, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm George Matthews once again, and I appreciate you being right where you are. The silence of our friends. Dr. King um, once made the statement in one of his speeches, uh, what will be remembered in the end will not be the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And it's from that latter phrase, latter phrase, uh, that the title of our program is derived. It can be very dangerous when those who can make a difference by speaking, uh, by saying, by declaring, by voicing their sentiments, and uh, their friends or expected others to be on one side, and they at particular times of uh, duress, distress, or even um, confrontation, uh, make a decision to be silent. And so we have been awakened, if we were asleep at all, we've been awakened uh, to the necessity for people of color to know their history and be able to be vocal and verbal uh, with impact when it becomes necessary to correct traditional erroneous, traditionally erroneous thinking and erroneous thoughts. Um, again, Dr. King make this statement, and I'd love to start the show off with these two statements. Um, Nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and or conscientious stupidity. And so it can be, it can be really raw when you have people in your presence and your company, people with whom you work, uh, recreate, uh, vacation, uh, are educated, or as simple as being uh, neighbors with, with whom you're neighbors, uh, that are sincerely ignorant of the plight of black and brown people in this country, the disparity of the ethnic groups here in America, this uh, yet to be, these yet to be United States in my vein. Um, And again, I I told a story when we first uh, began these shows that once I I had a kidney stone, not knowing what it was for 24 to 48 hours, I suffered an extreme pain. The day thereafter, I went to see my then physician and he did an x-ray and he said, young man, I believe that based on the traces I see in your digestive system or through your digestive tract, I can tell that your system probably passed what is known as a kidney stone. And this was something of some size, uh, according to his um, diagnosis. And uh, he said in our community, uh, to a man, a kidney stone of size being passed through the body is the equivalent, the, the second in equivalent to that of a woman giving birth to a child. It was then, besides watching my wife give birth, Uh, It was then that I decided that women are bosses, women are beasts in comparison to their pain tolerance to that of a man. But that's a side issue. The big point is if you've never had a kidney stone, uh, it's going to be imperative that you are silent when the conversation comes around to discuss the pain associated with a kidney stone. You need then to listen and become informed by people 
who have endured that pain or, or have had that particular experience. And so it is. Uh, there is one time to be silent, and that is when you don't know, when you have not lived in a world where you had the choice of, of being born with black skin or white skin. Now, I would still choose to be the same hue uh, and ethnicity of which I was born, in which I was born, uh, but there were no choices associated with it. And so white people were born white, black people were born black, brown people were born brown, if we keep it simple, the coloration simple. Um, but the key is when you're judged by the color of your skin, when you're dealt with by the color of your skin, when your uh, ability to be um, assessed, your your ability to uh, move up, upward mobility and movement is is determined by the color of your skin. People who have not had that same plight cannot, cannot, I repeat, voice sentiments. And so our program exists, and I need to say this probably more often than I have, to discover what our problem as a nation is, even though discrimination has existed for thousands of years and more countries than these yet to be United States, but as we live here and with the recent upheaval and uh, uprising of social unrest and um, uh, the, 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 the gaping gap that comes separating uh, racial groups here in these yet to be United States, we need to discover why is this? Why have black and brown people been treated so in such ill manners? Uh, for the in, in, since the entire beginning of this country, and it exists even to today, and what can be done about it? Uh, every physician, medical physician, will tell you ignoring pain will not create a cure. The pain must be uh, the reason for the pain must be discovered, and then cures can be sought. Um, let's move on with where we are tonight. Uh, the premise of the show is to answer the question surrounding the generally unfair treatment of people of color in America, to make it simple. It was Nathan. Now, since this is largely uh, acclaimed to be a Christian, and I surround that with air quotes, uh, country, uh, most people will accept the Bible if you give them Bible for a, a, a legitimate um, background, a foundation for making a point. So let's let's try that tonight. Let's see where we go with that. Uh, it was Nathan the prophet. Prophet. He was a spiritual seer. He occupied the office of a seer. S e e r. He was a seer. E r. And so, being a seer, uh, he it was equivalent to that of a prophet. It was Nathan in a t h a n the prophet who approached the political then figure, King David, to make him aware that his practices were wrong. It was the church, it was the spiritual people speaking to the world and correcting their perception. David had had an illicit affair with Bathsheba. Um, he later uh, was noted to be the father of uh, her unborn child. Um, he then uh, had his general, Uriah, U-R-I-A-H, Uriah, sent to the front line of battle and had him take a note to have him transferred to the front line. He was killed. David attempted to cover his action. And the spiritual man was not silent. He did not look the other way. He confronted the king. It was then that the king repented. So the premise of our program is to help our nation to see where we've gone wrong. It was Jesus who said that the law and the prophets reflecting the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is fulfilled in these two simple premises. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then watch this one. Love your neighbor as yourself, regardless of color, regardless of hue, regardless of melanin being present or the lack there, thereof. And so 
Even the prophet Isaiah, I love this, in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, the A portion in the NIV, Isaiah spoke out. He wasn't silent. He says, woe to them who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights, and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. He spoke out. He was not silent. And so away with the thought that the church or church people, churchmen, pastors, uh, people who love Jesus should be silent, look the other way, and hope the problems of our country dissipate on their own. It won't happen. So here's the show topic in one word. The answer to this question, one word, why? Why? Uh, the implied rest of the question would be this. Are people of color targets for mistreatment? But the simple word is why. Now, I read a, a long time ago, somewhere along the way, and I could not trace um, the origin of this statement. Um, when you have five of the five interrogative questions, applicable in accurately obtaining information, who, what, when, where, how, and why. It is said that only truly intelligent people and people who seek for the truth address the question of why. Uh, lesser intelligent minds, people who are just interested in discussing information, deal with the interrogative questions, who, what, when, where, but how and why uh, really get into those persons seeking truth and seeking justice as well as seeking change. Why defined uh, refers to the cause, reason, or purpose. Why is used in questions about the reasons for something. And I, th I don't think we can get down to the bottom of the problem. We can pray about it. That's good. But again, there are times you, you can pray about medical conditions in your physical anatomy, but faith without works is dead being alone. So faith, prayer, and works, natural efforts go together. And I think too long, people who need to be vocal and verbal have been silent. So then I also read somewhere that until the question of why is addressed, no true solutions can be gained. Jeffrey Robinson, Deputy Legal Director of the National ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, makes the statement, quote, and I quote, racism is not possible for black and brown people as racism, in his opinion, includes control, being in a position of affecting social power and legal authority. And he says, yes, black and brown people can be bigoted. They can have or experience, dis they can uh, discriminate but they can't be racist because they lack the social ability and legal ability to affect power. People of color in this country do not have as a consensus, as a demographic, the power to, to, to yield and wield racism. So here's a danger I, I read somewhere. And again, I couldn't trace the statement. I had it in my notes. There's a danger. And here's the danger I want us to, to use as a lens for our show tonight. Believing that one's present reality is the reality of all and is a true reality for themselves. That's dangerous. Uh, you know, people who live in confined situations often believe that everybody lives as they. Um, people who live in liberated situations often believe that their their reality, their lifestyle is the lifestyle of everyone. And that is a danger because that isn't true. Um, because one has one particular experience does not say that that is in a truthful way everyone's experience. So here are a few conclusions. In other words, I'm closing uh, tonight's program in the beginning and I'll back up and fill in some of the blanks.
people nor our nations. Please hear this. This is another filter or lens through which I, I ask that you will, I humbly ask that you will hear this program tonight. People nor our nations, quote, end quote, just one thing. Because, because one is a good father does not mean he cannot also be a bad money manager. Um, because a country, America, for example, is a great country and uh, with her freedoms compared to other countries does not mean it is just great by itself. People are not just one thing. They can be, you ask a, a, a woman who has been abused, why does she stay with that man who has been abusive? And for uh, good reasons, perhaps to her, because of the other parts that he does that are good. You ask a man who was maltreated by a woman, why does he stay with her? It, 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 he speaks to the fact that people are not just one thing. They can be many things in one vessel. And he'll say, well, I, I love the way she keeps house or she cooks or she cleans or she provides for me. I love uh, her vernacular. I love her education. I love her income. It could be many things. And so it is. We, we have attempted, I, I think, uh, since the inception of this country to make America one thing. And while America is a great country, and I thank God for America, she is not one thing, nor does she fall into one category. And as a pastor, I've counseled hundreds, maybe thousands of people over the years. And uh, my gosh, I have realized and even evaluating myself, people are many things in one body. They can be many things. Uh, Mr. Rogers even said years ago uh, on his PBS program that the same people that are good sometimes are the very same people that are bad sometimes. It's funny, but it's true. The same isn't it the same for me as you. All right, unless we get caught up in that, let's move along. Though a great country, the United States, these yet to be United States, was built on white supremacy. So why, in, 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 in to effectively answer the question of why the mistreatment of black and brown people in this country forever, since its inception, the more I dig, the more I delve, the more I study, the more disenfranchised and disgusted I am with what I didn't know, and the more I have to understand that we have to deal with a mentality, a mindset that has been passed along because this country was built on white supremacy, white superiority, black inferiority. That's what the country was built on. At the same time, the country was declaring its uh, independence from Great Britain, from England, as it were, 1776, the final document is signed uh, of the signers. 41 of the 56 signers went home to slave plantations where they owned the slaves. So how could it be uh, it, that this country, since its beginning, the 20, 20 and some slaves that started enslavement in this country were brought to the very same geographical location of which this country was founded. So from its very inception, slavery or the mistreatment and maltreatment of black and brown people was a part of the fabric of this country, the foundation. It's in the foundation of the country. You can preach uh, another way, you can spin it another way, but the facts remain. America has a problem that has been passed along and it's a thinking problem. For as he thinketh in his heart any man, so is he. Um, what it is, what is, it, is it that Jesus, the master teacher, said that out of the abundance of the heart a man speaketh? So we have to dig into, dig around um, what is in people's hearts. And uh, notice this, 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 the issue of enslavement, which was a part of the thinking and behavior of the fabric of this country. Again, 41 out of the 56 signers and founders, framers of the constitution of the country owned slaves. Uh, 
we when the word pronoun we was used I was always taught and educated to believe that the we was holistic the melting pot of America all the ethnicities uh, all of the races were included in this great country that's what I believed all my life for, for all of my life and so even raising up this program, some of the things that I w wish to bring out are not uh, in, in the attempt to shame anyone, to make anyone feel badly or discouraged or uh, to, to bring, to cast shadows of reflection and a negative light on, on any persons. But we've got to get down to the root of the matter. Uh, notice we, quote, unquote, never included black and brown wees never we were not a demographic that were included now whether it was intentional or not i don't know now when i get into uh, um, the confederacy not tonight but another night i'm going to talk about the brilliance of the confederates who uh, lost the war. Now, think of this now. The rebel flag and all of the Confederate generals who uh, various cities, schools, and federal buildings are named after in this country, which is, uh, are maintained by tax dollars of black, brown people, as well as the white uh, majority. Those people were fighting. The Confederacy was fighting for one reason, to uphold, keep, maintain slavery in the South, which the North benefited as well. However, the North was the army of the United States. So those Southerners, those 13 and 14, then 14 um, states were fighting against the United States. They were fighting against the United States. The North represented the United States government. And uh, you need to check out last week's show to talk about the difference between Abraham Lincoln being the great emancipator. I thank God for him. Thank God God used him. But according to statistics and uh, statements made, recorded in the Library of Congress, it was the same Abraham Lincoln that said, if I could keep the union together and maintain slavery, I would. If I have to liberate the slaves in order to keep the, the union of the United States together, then I will. So it wasn't that he wanted to necessarily let go and vanquish slavery. It was the fact of keeping the union together. So I'm saying all of this uh, was enmeshed into the mindset and the mentality of this country, which still propagates itself even today. Um, some contend that slavery ended in 1865 with the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, please pay attention here. It gets sticky. But because of inferiority thinking, slavery continued after the Emancipation Proclamation by another name. And I will put on the table that enslavement of black and brown people continues today by a myriad of other names. Uh, for example, Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens in 1861 made this statement. This is a man, vice president, who was alive during the entire uh, Confederate struggle where there was this fight over the keeping of, of, of legal slaves, owning people as chattel. He makes this statement. Now, again, we're not asking people who did not live in that day. This is a man in 1861. The Emancipation was signed in eight proclamation in 1865. So notice this. Our new government is founded upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. This is in the fabric of this country. This is why the conflicts and the clashes have been and continue to be until we deal with the facts that have built this country, we will not be able to pull down these particular strongholds. I'll begin again. Our new government is founded upon, ellipsis, and so he goes on, the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination 
to the superior race, which he is inferring the white race, is his natural and normal condition. That slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. How much plainer could he make himself? <laughs> Many believe, um, again, when thinking that slavery ended in 1865 with the signing of the um, Emancipation Proclamation, so forth and so on, uh, and the discussions that ensued 1863 through 1865, um, they believe that this happened so long ago, please pay attention here if you will, that the atrocities associated with slavery should merely be forgotten as they should no longer be issues to black and brown people in America. That, that was a long time ago. Um, it was 150 years ago, so to speak. Um, black and brown people should be okay by now. Well, first of all, let's not forget that these people who were enslaved totaled somewhere between, and, and no one knows for sure, 4 million and 7 million black and brown people um, over a 250, 300 year period that were enslaved. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen raw cotton. Now I have. I can't remember where I first went, but um, uh, to understand that back in, 18, in the 1860s, the, that cotton was a billion dollar industry. Is, is to understand that slavery was a bigger uptick in the economy than all of the railroads, all of the banks, all of the real estate, and, and, and everything, all the industries combined, slavery was the biggest thing going. And they picked cotton. Now, cotton, to understand, it, it probably weighs less than a gram. You take the seed away and just the, the, the cotton itself, the fiber itself, probably less than a gram, maybe a gram. But to understand how these people were picking bales of cotton and the numbers, you have to go back to last week's program. I don't want to get off on that. That's a lot of cotton. That by itself is an atrocity. But worse than that, they weren't compensated. And even when they were freed, so to speak. They weren't given land. They weren't given tools. They weren't given resources. They didn't, uh, uh, many did not know, how the, were, were not literate. So what were they going to do? It was enslavement by another name. And then there came along this subject of convict leasing, convict leasing, which meant that I'll just read these notes here. After the Civil War, Southern states were able to perpetuate the racial hierarchy and coerced labor that existed under slavery. So it just changed names um, by making them central figures of their judicial systems. As Douglas Blackman documents in slavery, the book Slavery by Another Name, statutes criminalizing minor and subjective crimes allowed law enforcement to easily arrest black men who were then leased, listen to this, to farmers and private industry as laborers to the financial benefit, not of the man, not of his family, of the state. So the state still profited by the free labor of black and brown men who were picked up on quest very questionable charges that didn't even were not even required to be proven, and they were forced to work in what was called the convict leasing system. The, the this this happened by way of the passage of what were known as vagrancy laws, slavery by another name. Men were arrested, leased out to plantations. Sometimes the very plantation or plantations where they worked before they were emancipated. It just was a, a vicious circle and cycle. Not compensated, but again, the cities were compensated for their work. For example, among the County convicts working in the Pratt Mines of Birmingham, Alabama in 1890. 1890. Civil wars fought. 
Slaves are emancipated, quote unquote, in air quotes, wink, wink. Uh, but now here we come back with something else that is embedded in the fabric of the thinking of this country because it was in the history. Now, we don't hear this in the history books. Oh, no, it's been whitewashed, sanitized and uh, particularly intentionally angled to the benefit of, of the white majority. And so we have to deal with that, that we, we, we have to reclaim our history and help others understand this is where the wheels came off on the track. Notice this, in 1860, 24 men, Jefferson County, Birmingham, Alabama, 24 men were incarcerated for using what they referred to, quote, end quote, as obscene language. Can you imagine being a, a formerly a slave a few years ago, and now you have no literacy skills, you have no land, you have no money, you have no income, you have a family, uh, that part of the family of which, uh, for which, uh, in which you haven't been separated, and they are on corners, probably using obscene language, and they have broken the law, and it, it is a imprisonable offense. And now these men, 24 for obscene, arrested for obscene language, another 24 for quote unquote false pretense. This was a statute in the vagrancy law used to punish black men who changed employers before the end of the farming season. In other words, slavery by another name was also sharecropping, which meant you never could get ahead because the plantation owner would never pay you rightfully for the work you've done. Then he would charge you to live on the land. Then he would charge you to have clothing for yourself and your family. And then he would add to the charges that he was amassing uh, by your labors and you never could get ahead. And so when black men would understand the game, wink, wink, and move on, they could be arrested under vagrancy laws and thrown into prison and the system again would put them back out there working slave, enslaved by another name. Seven for vagrancy, another ill-defined charge that left, listen to this, any unemployed black person vulnerable to arrest. I referred to that in, in several weeks uh, ago show, which meant that if you were black or brown and you had no job, which uh, guess what? Uh, let's just think uh, how many slaves who have been emancipated recently would have their own jobs, not many. So they knew this was a catch 22 in the law. So if you're walking around, you're not working for employed by someone white, you could be arrested and then made to work in prison camps, uh, working to build railroads, uh, to break up rock quarries, to mine coal, uh, just everything that made uh, America the, the resourceful country that it is now. In Alabama, the convict leasing system remained on the books until 1928 at its earliest and as late as 1941. And I've seen some research that said it, it went on in vague counties uh, even longer than that. Can you imagine? Let's use our glossary tonight. Okay, still have a few minutes. White nationalist. White nationalist. That's a term I hear thrown around a lot. Well, white nationalist groups espouse white supremacist or white separatist ideologies. In other words, white nationalist means the same thing as a white supremacist are right separatists, which means this, these are people who think, well, let's just read the definition. Often focusing on the alleged, here it is, wait for it, the alleged inferiority of non-whites, which means if you're not white, you are in an inferior class and the only superior class are, is held by those exclusively who are white. Groups listed in a variety of other categories, Ku Klux Klan, KKK, I'm going to do an entire show on the, them uh, sooner or later. Neo-Confederates, now the word, the prefix neo just simply means new. So that means you had the Confederates of the 1800s, but you have Neo-Confederates who have arisen in, in, in new days.
uh, neo-Nazis, yeah, Hitler's Nazis, um, uh, racist skinheads and Christian identity could ease, also be fairly described as white nationalists. Now, there's this um, little graphic I saw somewhere, and it makes this statement, and I need to read it as I, I'm getting to these other glossary terms. And I apologize they're not in alphabetical sequence, which a glossary should be, really. Um, and, and it has a, a, a fish swimming around in a fish bowl. And obviously, you can see through the fish bowl, through the top, and all four sides or the bowl, if it's round, the circumference of it, you can see through it because it's of its design. It's a fish bowl. And it, it has the fish in the graphic um, fish, proverbial fish bowl. And the statement under it, the caption under it read, the longer you swim in a culture, the more invisible it becomes. I think that's, we're on to something. There are people who can't imagine why or the reason for which people of color are so angry. And the reason for that is they've been swimming around in this proverbial fishbowl so long that the culture outside the fishbowl and even inside the fishbowl is invisible to them. The only thing they know, they're swimming. They are not aware of what's going on outside the bowl. They're, not, they're unaware there's a, okay, I'm, I'm getting on my soapbox here. Culture, here's the second glossary term, refers to the knowledge, experience, beliefs, values, attitudes, meanings, hierarchies, religion, nations of time, roles, spatial relations, concepts of the universe, and material objects and possessions acquired by a group of people in the course of generations through individual and group striving. So all of those categories make up what we refer to as culture. Culture is the collective programming of the mind that distinguishes the members of one group or category of people from another. So the culture makes the distinctions based on these uh, specific marks within the culture. So let's combine it now. Cultural racism. What is that? Cultural racism is how the dominant culture, white culture, is founded upon and then shapes norms, values, beliefs, and standards to advantage white people. This is not my definition. This is a definition I found through research and oppress people of color. So cultural racism, cultural racism is the, the thought of how the dominant culture is founded upon and then shapes. So it's a thinking thing. And then shapes the norms, values, beliefs, standards, and standards to advantage white people and oppress you. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a supremacist mentality without causing an inferiority on all other groups because if you're not actively intentionally making other racial groups inferior the natural inclination of humanity is that they will rise and there will be no superiority and so for supremacy to work you have to both have the mentality of this founding uh, founded country, founded upon white supremacy. You have to maintain it in every category available. And then at the same time, you have to intentionally be taking marks to make certain that others that are not within the white supremacist grouping are oppressed intentionally again. Now notice this, uh, white supremacy culture is reproduced by all the institutions of our society, in particular, the media, educational system, Western science, which played a major role in reinforcing the idea of race as a biological truth with the, the white race as the quote-unquote ideal, top of the hierarchy. That's what you run into when you have uh, white police officers uh, maligning, uh, arresting, and um, ill-treating people of color because they're so angry at the people of color 
because of not what they've done, but because of who they are. White supremacist mentality possesses an anger and a hostility uh, towards people that are not in that ethnicity because they see them as not seated, not worthy to be seated in this hierarchy, which they refer to as the ideal race, blonde hair, blue eyes, no melanin in the skin to speak of. Um, uh, uh, okay, let's just go on. The Christian church has even played roles in reproducing the idea of white supremacy. Uh, and when we say that, it, it carries with it the thought or the notion that white is normal, quote-unquote, better, quote-unquote, smarter, quote-unquote, more holy in contrast to black and other people and communities of color. This is from Sharon Martinez, um, all the challenging white supremacy workshop. Now, that is, a, that is amazing because even in the church, you have to take specific pains to help non-black and brown people understand, no, not on the basis of color, is one more holy, smarter, better, or more normal, which infers that if I'm brown or browner than someone else, there just went my intellect, there just went my being normal. I'm not even normal because normal is white and brown or black is ab <laughs> normal. I think, and I'm, I'm closing now, um, Dr. King makes a statement, and, and I, I didn't want to be long tonight, and I've been 45 minutes or thereabouts. Please allow me to read. This is a, a book I love, a, a Testament of Hope, and it's a collection of uh, Dr. King's essential writings and uh, speeches, so forth and so on. And he writes in this, it was gifted to me by one of my members who knows um, I love Dr. King's writings, and of course, um, this is a book from their father's library who, after his demise, um, they pass it along to me, and of which I'm very grateful. Um, this particular speech is entitled, A Time to Break Silence. A Time to Break Silence. Now, I'm going somewhere here. I'm closing. A Time to Break Silence. Dr. King delivered this historic address to a meeting, uh, at a meeting of clergy and laity concerned. That was the title of the group. Um, the name of the group, Clergy and Laity Concern. The meeting was held at the Riverside Church in New York City on the 4th of April, 1967, exactly one year before he was, you know it, assassinated. Although this was not the first time he had expressed opposition to the Vietnam War, it was the first time he linked it to the civil rights movement. And it was the first time that he directly attacked the Johnson administration's war policy. Notice this. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight. This is Dr. King. Because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join with you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statement of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines, quote, a time comes when silence is betrayal, end quote. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. Now, I'll, I'll skip through it. I just wanted you to, to get this part. I wanted to read all of that, but I, my, my time is... You, okay, I'll skip to here. Some of us have already begun to break the silence of the night, Have who have uh, already begun to break the silence of the night, have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. I wanted you to hear that. It's often a vocation of agony, but we must speak. 
We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak and we must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism going on, going on to get along, um, so forth and so on. Smooth patriotism to the high grounds of firm dissent firm dissent, excuse me, based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movement well and pray that our own, hear this, inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so closely connected to us. Over the past few years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences, and this is amazing to me, and to speak from the burnings of my own heart as I have called for racial departures from the destruction of Vietnam. Many persons, please hear this, this probably is more applicable to church people, churched people, and people who represent Christianity and love for God. When you speak to racial issues and uh, People are often assaged with the idea that you're attempting to start something, uh, as it was with Dr. King. He says this, um, as I've called for racial departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask? And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I am nevertheless greatly saddened, for such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me. My commitment or my calling, indeed, their question suggests that they do not know the world in which they live. I found those words to be so accurate and apropos for where we are now because many people want the church as well as voiced others who may be in the church to be silent. I think that is a, a cop-out. I really do. I think to be in the church means that you are a proponent of truth. Uh, to not be in the church and be a right thinking, sound thinking person means that you're a proponent of truth. And you you have to deal with, one has to deal with inconsistencies all the way around, black, white, or otherwise. And that's amazing. And I'm closing. And I don't have time. I can't deal with this tonight. But I, I, I came across some research a few weeks ago. And I've never read this, never read this. I have... Um, uh, one of my members was visiting uh, Memphis and visiting the uh, Lorraine Motel, which was the spot geographically where Dr. King was assassinated in 1968. And um, April 4th, I believe, um, they have the historic uh, museum there. And you can buy certain relics and things of that nature there, which I visited. And I did not see this particular piece, but one of my members visited and brought me back a uh, wrapped a replica of the newspaper the day after, the Friday after of the Thursday, which, if my memory serves me correct, in which he was assassinated. And there were so many articles there, so much writing about the turbulence across the country, so forth and so on. I'll get to the point. But everything I've read historically has never borne out these particular facts that I found just recently. I read somewhere that in Dr. King's personal effects, in his briefcase, was found an undelivered speech. Now, he, the night before he delivered his final speech at Mason Temple Church of God in Christ uh, there in Memphis, Tennessee, the I've been to the mountaintop speech. But he, the day of his assassination, as I understand it, his secretary at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church he pastored in Atlanta, called him and said, Dr. King, I'm getting the bulletin together for Sunday service. 
This is Thursday, maybe even as early as Wednesday. But I'm getting the bulletin together. You're traveling, and I need to know what is going to be the title of the message for Sunday. And he told her the message, and they, the message was found uh, in his briefcase. Now, the title alone gives us great reason to question where his mind was at the time. And I'm going to give it to you. Just hold on. I'm going to give it to you. Uh, I've not read this anywhere. I, I, I got on the track of it and I started tracing this and it was ver verified by various uh, sources um, of my research. But I think, I think, and we're left to wonder because I have never been able to find the much more than just the title of the speech. And the speech is, is entitled, Why America May Go to Hell. Now, I don't know if he was saying America should, as in may go to hell, or if he was saying that because of certain prevalent causes that he uh, had given his life to combat, the country was so embedded and so infiltrated in the, this pervasive thinking and thought and these notions that it may be hell bound, figuratively speaking. And, and if so... I'm not so certain that that final speech was wrong. So no actual notes, notes, but I believe it could have been his coming to grips, grips with the thought that this mindset of white supremacy is so embedded in this country that it's going to take all of us to never be silent again. Business philosopher Jim Rohn, R-O-H-N, and it's pronounced Ron like Khan, K-O-H-N. Uh, it was one of my favorite quoters back in maybe 10 years ago, and I have a book of his quotes, and he makes this statement about truth. He says, quote, sincerity is not a test of truth. We must not make this mistake. And then he gives a colon for an example. He must be right. He is so sincere. We've seen that. He must be right. He's so sincere. It is possible, he goes on to say, to be sincerely wrong. We can only judge truth by truth and sincerity by sincerity. Uh, remember, silence is compromise. Silence is um, complicity to that which is erroneous. Silence condone inferior thought patterns and perceptions of people of color. Silence is agreeing with the sanitized history of this country and thus co-signing with control, mind and mental control of the status of this country, status of people of color, currency of people of color, and the futures of people of color. I close with this statement, just as there is a time to keep silent, the Bible, which we love so dearly and deeply, gives the axiom or the converse. There's also a time to speak. I appreciate you being with us tonight. Until next week, at the very same time, uh, let us hear from you. Subscribe to the channel. Uh, comment. Share the link with friends. And uh, tell us how we're doing and affecting your life and opening up. Uh, chasms of thought and so forth and so on our facebook family we bid you godspeed and thank you all uh, youtube as well as facebook family for sharing your time with us tonight until next week we bid you godspeed we can never be silent again